Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation and presentation by Peter Gleckler, a noted climate scientist. This conversation is hosted by Michael Lerner. Peter Gleckler, welcome to the New School. Thank you. Uh, Peter, you are a research scientist at the Program for Climate Model Diagnosis and Intercomparison at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. Uh, and you are also a, a lead scientist uh, for the uh, International Panet, uh, on, Panel on Climate Change. Uh, you led the uh, design of the World Climate Research Program's Atmospheric Model Intercomparison Project. Um, and uh, in short, you've done a tremendous amount of thinking about the science on climate change. Uh, you're a uh, friend and Bolinas resident. Uh, your wife, uh, Emmanuel Wobot, is here with us today. She is uh, a professor at the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine in the Department of Neurology. She focuses on multiple sclerosis research. And because we're a community, I can say that she, she was a very close friend of my best friend in Bolinas, uh, Charles Fox, who died uh, a couple of years ago, and also of his wife, Vera Fox, Charles uh, lived an extraordinarily long time with uh, advanced multiple sclerosis and was a, a very extraordinary man. And so we're all woven together in a web of relationships in the community. Um, and um, it's wonderful to have you and Emmanuel with us today. So uh, you're going to start with a half-hour uh, presentation of your science research. And one thing I want to say about the conversation afterward, um, the International Panel on Climate Change uh, is the focus of a tremendous amount of interest around the world um, by people with very different points of view. And therefore, any scientist who is a lead scientist with uh, the panel has to be very thoughtful about what he or she says. So I want us all to understand that there may well be points in the conversation where it simply isn't appropriate for Peter to voice an opinion or a perspective. Uh, he may refer us back to our own views, but, um, but it is important for us to protect his integrity as a scientist and a, uh, a leading contributor to uh, the science on climate change. So I just think... Let's hold that in our minds as we ask questions. And I've encouraged Peter, if there are questions that he should not comment on, simply to say so. It won't be a dodge. It will be protection of the integrity that is essential for his scientific work. So with that, Peter, I'd like to turn it over to you for your presentation. And we look forward to it. And then we'll have a conversation. Thank you, Michael. Well, I think I have to get used to this being attached to the wall. Right. <laughs> the, the, the main issue about um, what I would talk about or what I wouldn't talk about really is that uh, I have a responsibility um, to uh, present the material that I'm going to be discussing 
as a scientist, and that means uh, to do so objectively and not be thinking uh, in terms of any environmental views I may have. Because um, scientists have received uh, a considerable amount of criticism over the issue of climate change. And one of the many attacks that we often get is that these are just organized environmentalists that are trying to change the world. And really, um, uh, the scientists that are doing all of this work are dedicated uh, to trying to better understand uh, the world we live in and, and how we're affecting it. So that's, that's the issue. Uh, I'll confess that it's been more than five years since I've given a, uh, a non-scientific talk. Uh, and as a result of that, this is going to be fairly science-y. Um, and I think that maybe is a good thing in that uh, you're all here today because you're interested and concerned about the issue of climate change and you, you hear or read about it almost daily in the papers. And there's uh, quite a range of information that's out there, and it can, be, it can be hard to know what to make of it and what to believe and, and what not to believe. Uh, so I think uh, even not only because it's my line of work, but I think it might be helpful for you to be exposed to some of the technical details of what it is we understand and, and what we don't understand. And... I will show a lot of stuff that you might not all get. I don't get all of it, so don't worry about my, my slides being too complicated. Um, but what I'm basically going to do is start by giving you a crash course in uh, our understanding of the Earth's climate. This will be 10 or 15 minutes, and it'll take us through about five years of graduate school. So, uh, <laughs> And then I'm going to talk some about the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and its most recent uh, works and findings, and then uh, we'll be talking about perspectives on climate change. So to begin with, uh, our understanding really starts with the, a, a wide range of observations that we have available to us to study. There's, of course, temperature and rain uh, measurements that you're familiar with, but what you may not uh, think about so much is that these measurements that are taken all around the world are archived uh, routinely and made, uh, put together in, in well-organized databases so that scientists can study them. And we do have temperature measurements that actually go back several hundred years. The, the instruments have changed and that's something that we need to be factoring in when we study them, but uh, we have uh, really a diversity. Uh, on the one hand, we have a wealth of observations to help us un understand the climate, but on the other hand, uh, we need a lot more. So uh, another aspect uh, that we use uh, these days in trying to understand the climate, which is tremendously useful, is data from satellites. These provide us uh, quite a different perspective than the sort of uh, local instruments in that they give us a global coverage. Uh, and in many of the things we measure, we can measure quite accurately. Uh, one of the disadvantages to them is they only go back to about 1980 or so. Uh, there's lots of research that's done uh, out at sea with uh, ships. Uh, there are planes that are taking measurements constantly, and, and all of these things are pulled together so that scientists can study them. Uh, tree rings are actually quite useful for some scientists to study, to try and look back at how climate has changed uh, over centuries, and even, uh, you may not recognize, yikes, that. But what we're looking at there is um, an ice core which has been drilled in uh, the Antarctic uh, and gone down 100 meters or so. 
and this core of ice is pulled out of the ground and laid horizontally and slices are taking of it and scientists can uh, take needles inside that ice and extract tiny bubbles and look at the various constituents of what's inside those bubbles which actually give us uh, some hints on what the atmosphere was like eons ago. So this is uh, really where it all begins uh, in terms of our concerns about uh, global warming or, um, or climate change. And this is a, <clears throat> a plot which is showing basically uh, how much carbon dioxide is in the atmosphere on, on this axis. And on this axis, we're looking at time. It begins in 1960. And uh, we're looking at how carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has uh, steadily increased over time. This measurement was taken atop uh, Mauna Loa uh, uh, in Hawaii um, because it's very clean air out there. And what we see, these little wiggles, are actually evidence of the seasonal cycle uh, because there's a difference between the amount of land in the northern hemisphere and the southern hemisphere and the the uh, carbon cycle of how there's respiration uh, from plants over land is quite different than the way the ocean breathes and, and there are carbon exchanges. So we see, we see that in the seasonal cycles, but what's been very clear is that the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has been going up, and we know why. This is another picture of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Uh, but it's looking way back in time. I think this is uh, going back uh, over 400,000 years. And this is, this, uh, these time changes of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere are coming from those tiny bubbles um, taken from um, ice sheets. And what's shown here is what has taken place over these last 50 years. And you see how dramatic of an increase that is. And this line here is indicating that it's been uh, more than 650,000 years since the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere has gone above that line. So while there's lots of criticism about climate change and what we understand and what we don't, and uh, there are deniers of it, they don't have anything to say against this. They, uh, those measurements are very accurate. Carbon dioxide, uh, lasts a long time in the atmosphere. Actually, um, uh, it's, it's a bit complicated, but it actually lasts on the order of a hundred and hundreds of years, uh, as opposed to water vapor. When, when there's evaporation from the surface of the ocean and the water molecule get, gets up in the air, it lasts in the air for about a week. But the carbon dioxide is there to stay for a long time. So now I'm gonna talk a little bit about theory this is the second cornerstone to how we build our understanding uh, in, in uh, climate. And uh, this simple cartoon is just showing how uh, sunlight comes and hits the Earth. But it's not quite that simple. We know that uh, some sunlight is reflected by clouds back to space. Some of the sunlight is absorbed by the atmosphere. Some of it uh, is reflected from the surface. And some of it is absorbed by the surface. What's shown here is uh, what we regard to actually, technically what we call it is long wave radiation, but uh, you can think of it as um, infrared radiation. What's shown here is thermal radiation, but basically all bodies are emitting energy uh, at different wavelengths. And 
the long wave radiation which is emitted from the surface uh, is um, emitting energy out towards space, uh, but it, it has very different characteristics than the sunlight. And some of that energy uh, can be absorbed by the atmosphere and re-emitted back down to the surface. And that process is uh, what we refer to as the greenhouse gas trapping. And the most predominant, uh, the most important naturally occurring greenhouse gases are water vapor and carbon dioxide. So carbon dioxide is not a pollutant. It's very much a part of our existence. Plants breathe with it. This is uh, the same picture, but a bit more complicated now. And I'm just showing you uh, what the sunlight that's coming in, some that's reflected, and then there's this uh, uh, thermal energy that's being radiated out to space. Don't worry so much about the numbers, but they're meant to indicate basically the magnitude of how much sun is coming in how much sunlight, how much is reflected. At the top of the atmosphere, we actually can observe this quite well from satellites over the last 10 years or so. So we get these numbers quite accurately, all of them. Down here near the surface, things are a bit more complicated. Um, and there's various processes that we have to be concerned with, such as evaporation over the ocean and so on. Um, but one thing that I'd just like to point out is there's this imbalance. Uh, Basically, at the moment, because of the increasing CO2 in the atmosphere, uh, there's more energy coming in to the climate system than is going out. It's a small number. This is 0.6 compared to 340 of sunlight. Uh, but nonetheless, the Earth is, is uh, gaining energy. And one thing I note is, if you look to over here at this thermal energy that's radiating back towards the surface, that number is twice the amount of sunlight that's reaching the surface. And that may seem a little counterintuitive, but it's in fact very real. Um, one way you can think of it is that this is averaged over the entire world, and much of the day there is no sunlight. It's nighttime, uh, but the thermal energy is radiating constantly. And so the greenhouse gases really play an important role in maintaining this uh, the heat the, and the average temperature of the Earth. Without them, uh, we wouldn't make it. It would be far too cold. We understand an awful lot about the atmosphere. Uh, this is just to depict what we refer to as the general circulation. The, the circulation is quite different in the lower latitudes uh, than it is in the mid-latitudes. Uh, we understand the trade winds and why they're actually coming why there's a curvature to them, and this is associated with the fact that the Earth is rotating. Uh, there are the circulation cells. Um, one of the most predominant is referred to as the Hadley cell, and this is fueled by deep convection that happens in the low latitudes around the tropics. It's basically convective plumes and bombs that are shooting up with lots of moisture and heating the atmosphere as, as, as uh, they rise. So this is a, a, just a, a very large-scale perspective of how we can look at the atmosphere and its general circulation. Similarly, in the ocean, there are these gyres that you've heard about or are familiar with, and these are primarily driven uh, by the surface winds from the atmosphere. But in the deeper ocean, things are quite a bit different. Uh, there is an actual circulation associated with 
um, parts of the ocean where the water is sinking. In fact, it's very much similar to what we see in the atmosphere with these deep convective plumes in the tropics. In some regions, notably in the, in the North Atlantic and in the Antarctic, the surface waters gets very cold and also uh, they're highly saline because there's been a lot of evaporation, let's say, associated with the Gulf Stream, and that produces very dense water and it just basically sinks. And so it's like convection, but reverse. It's going into the ocean. And that drives a circulation from the surface. And um, there are much, much longer timescales associated with the circulation of the ocean. Lastly, a thing we rely on quite a lot to understand climate change are climate models. And uh, you may have heard less about these, but I think it's useful to know that we rely on these quite heavily for uh, our understanding, particularly when we're trying to look into the future. So this is where it gets really messy, uh, but don't worry, there's equations here. Uh, but all of these equations um, rely on really basic principles, such as the conservation of mass or the conservation of energy. And basically, for creating one of these climate models, we have a, a model of the atmosphere, model of the ocean, a model of the land, model of the sea ice. These are all separate models that we end up at the end of the day putting together into one big model. But what we do within the atmosphere, for example, is we, we divide it up into a bunch of cubes. We call them grid cells. Uh, and that's not just all the way around the world, but also through the depth of the atmosphere. And in each one of these cubes, we solve these equations, lots of equations. And we can just look forward a little bit in time, say an hour, and how do things change by, by the winds and, and by these basic principles. So what we do with climate models is we're solving uh, a mathematical representation of our theory, which is based on observations, and we can project forward. This is uh, an example of a supercomputer which was built in Japan specifically for uh, modeling uh, the climate, well, also uh, for earthquakes, which is a big deal for them. But uh, this is really, it's a, it's a huge endeavor to develop models like this and even to, to make use of them is quite expensive because they need lots of electricity. It's a, it's a very uh, ambitious undertaking. What's shown here is uh, a model representation over Europe, just giving you the indication of the elevation, which gives you some sense of, of the, how much details in these, in these models. And so we see what the Alps look like. It's not all that great, but uh, from a very large scale perspective, that's what these, these models are doing. Um, and in the models that are coming in the next five years or so, there's going to be much more detail, and that's just because there are bigger computers that are being developed. But to give you some sense of what these models are doing, here's California, and there's just uh, four or five grid cells. So it's a very coarse perspective. Uh, this is um, uh, a lot of work that I have done and, and my colleagues has been working with people around the world to get people who are uh, studying the future climate organized so that we can compare our results together. And basically, the various uh, centers around the world that are developing these climate models, uh, we have defined a set of experiments uh, that they all do, so it's a common set of experiments. 
And one of the most common is what we call a historical experiment. And what they're trying to do here is simulate how, how the climate has changed over the last 150 years, basically since the Industrial Revolution began. And so in one of these models, the atmosphere is changing and the ocean's changing and the ice is doing its own thing, but we force it externally with things uh, for it to respond to. In particular, we force it with volcanic eruptions that we know that have happened during the 20th century. There's solar variability uh, that takes place on the order of seven to 10 years. And then uh, what we're all trying to better understand is we, we impose on these models the CO2 that we have observed that has changed over the last 150 years. So we impose that on the models. But these are really tools for us to ask questions because we can't go do an experiment on the Earth. We only have one Earth and it is what it is. But in the modeled world, we can ask questions and change the model and say, well, what if we did this? And one of the things we do is a world without our influence, without the changing uh, CO2 concentration. And then lastly, uh, what we do is uh, these models are run into the future. And when that's done, uh, what we're trying to see is, well, what's going to happen depending on what we, we do in the future? So they're run with different levels of CO2 increase. In other words, what are our choices in the future? And we plug those into the models and, and see what gives. Okay, so that's the five-year crash course. And now I'm going to talk uh, a little bit about the IPCC. Um, this is a United Nations organization that has been in existence since, I think, about 1988. Um, and it was an initially established to try and help pull together scientific expertise around the world, um, because already at that time, uh, it was clear that uh, we needed to be concerned, be thinking more about man's impact on, on the climate. There are three working groups um, that have been established, and I have been working under this one, the first one, which is the scientific basis. And I'm going to be showing you results from uh, the recent publications, recent publication of that. There, previously, there were uh, four assessments beginning in 1990, 1995, and this is where uh, there were statements uh, in this report um, about uh, a discernible influence of man on climate, and I watched some of my friends and colleagues uh, get just uh, torn apart by various uh, factions um, for the statements that ended up being made in here, but um, we've moved on. The fourth assessment, uh, which was in 2007, the IPCC was awarded the Nobel Prize jointly, uh, Peace Prize, with uh, Al Gore. So there were many, many of us that uh, uh, got to take a tiny sliver of this and, and <laughs> really tiny sliver of it and, and put it on a resume. So uh, the process of the fifth assessment report, uh, uh, the lead authors were uh, identified by various countries and uh, confirmed by the IPCC, and our job was to assess the literature uh, since 2007. So we weren't doing science. We were forbid from doing science, but really to focus on all of the publications that had come since 2007 and for us to make judgments on uh, the relevance and the robustness of, of that research. We had lots of guidelines we had to follow, 
This was a picture of us in our first meeting in Kunming, China in uh, November of 2010, and this was our last meeting in, in Tasmania. Uh, we had several uh, drafts that we went through, and when we came up with a draft, we had to make this available for a much uh, broader community to comment on, uh, and it was mostly through people who had scientific uh, experience or expertise, um, but, but not only. Um, there were 260 of us in this report from 39 different countries, and we received 54,000 comments on uh, our drafts. And by the IPCC guidelines, we had to respond to every single one of those responses and document that. So over the course of these years, we produced these spreadsheets of responding to the comments, many of them which were constructive, some of them which were not, and, and actually documenting our, our changes and how we actually change the graph, uh, the draft associated with that. Lots of chapters. Uh, early on, it's focused on our observational understanding. Uh, then there's theoretical stuff. And then from here on on, it's um, uh, really tr the detection and attribution is uh, a very important part of our work to try and um, basically tease out from the record the difference between what is naturally occurring variability versus uh, climate change, which, is, which we're responsible for. And we rely on the climate models to help us do this, and we also use the climate models for uh, studying possibilities in the future. So this last half of the report is really based on climate models. The report itself, which I now have a hard copy of, it's crazy. This is it. Uh, I've not read the whole thing yet. Can we pass this around? <laughs> Can pass it around, yes, it's heavy. Yeah. It's freely available online, and I'd suggest going that way. Um, <laughs> but uh, from that report of 250 people, uh, leading climate scientists in different disciplines, uh, uh, it's, it, this was distilled further down to a summary for policymakers, which is about 20 pages. And this is basically trying to condense our understanding of the science, which is provided to uh, various governments around the world to provide them with the scientific guidance on making any policy decisions related to climate change. Uh, this is just showing you that we had to be, we had to follow guidelines in terms of our assessing the literature and building confidence on various aspects of the science. We had to think about the agreement of different studies, the quality of the data used and the consistency, and so there's lots of key words in here that show up at various places in that document which are based on multiple factors that was uh, a lot of work. And what's shown up here is just looking at how carbon, the carbon accumulated in the climate system has changed over time. Starts in 1750, 1850 is really when we think about the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, and then going up to 2000. And this show here is just showing the total amount of carbon, uh, new carbon that has been uptake by the climate system. And what's shown down here is uh, what's coming from coal. This here is oil and, and gas. Uh, so it's just the, the total amount over time. This figure here is showing 
pretty much the same thing, except for we've also added, added in uh, a contribution from land use changes associated with agricultural and deforestation. This also plays a role in changes in, in the carbon cycle. And uh, this kind of mirror image down here is showing where the carbon has been uptake in the climate system. Uh, the uh, light blue is the accumulation of carbon in the atmosphere, and the figure that I showed earlier from Mauna Loa, that's basically reflecting this increasing CO2 in the atmosphere. What's shown here in the darker blue is the uh, uptake of carbon in the ocean, and the green basically is the uptake over land. And it's very noisy because this is something we don't measure so well. We're looking here at uh, um, a change in temperature averaged over the whole globe beginning in 1850, going out to about 2010. Now, the, we actually, it's a little complicated, but we subtracted out the average value. So what we say we're looking at anomalies here or departures. And what's clear is that we see this warming over time. You see several different lines here, and that's because different groups around the world have taken the same raw data and made different processing choices on how to deal with uh, the complications and the limitations of the data and how to deal with the fact that we don't have data everywhere, for example. But they get pretty consistently similar answers. And what's done down here is for each of those 10-year periods, we just average across the decade to get a decadal average. And you see that in the last 30 to 40 years, uh, there's a clear indication on a decadal average that the temperature has been going up. And this is in degrees Celsius, so it's gone from about zero beginning in 1970 to 0.5. You're listening to a conversation with Peter Gleckler and Michael Lerner. But we can look beyond temperature now, and this is really what has uh, um, uh, really helped solidify our concerns in the last 10 or so years now is what's shown here is temperature changes over land going back from 1850. This is uh, at the sea surface. This is uh, temperature measured by boats, usually at about um, two meters. So these are completely different measurements, different instruments that are used. Sea level, we have tide gauges that go back for a couple hundred years. More recently, from satellite, we can measure sea level changes. So that's what the different colors here are, basically different estimates. Uh, and then there's the Arctic sea ice uh, in, uh, in its clear decline here. Over here, uh, the t uh, time period starts in 1940 and goes to 2010, and we're looking at the mid-atmosphere, the ocean heat content, which is my area of work, humidity in the atmosphere, northern hemisphere snow, glaciers, and pH in the ocean. So there's many different indicators now that something is changing, and they're all based on independent measurements. This is something I wasn't sure I was going to show you, but too late, I did. It's a, it's a messy figure, but basically, um, when I talked earlier about the top of the atmosphere and what would normally be a, in, a, in equilibrium, we'd have the same amount of sunlight coming in as energy that's going out, we've got this imbalance. And we've been thinking for a long time that it's all about carbon dioxide. And it, it largely is, but there are other, other factors that have been studied more recently associated with ozone, uh, surface land use changes, contrails from 
from uh, airplanes. And basically anything to the right here is indicating uh, that it's uh, in the sense of warming the Earth, where there are other influences, man-made influences, which could be cooling the Earth. And one of note here is aerosols, particulates that get up into the atmosphere, uh, which could be coming from uh, automobiles or power plants, uh, primarily sulfate aerosols, but that there's these interactions that take place between the aerosols and, and clouds, and it's very complicated, and there's lots of uncertainty associated with them. And that's why our confidence is low. But when we sum all these things together, uh, we have a clear um, positive forcing. So how do we identify the causes of the observed changes? Uh, just look at this top plant plot for a moment. The, we're looking at the global average temperature changes, again, from 1860 to near present. The black line is showing the observations and how it's warmed more recently. And what's shown by the red and the blue lines and lots of little lines in between are climate models that have been forced with volcanic eruptions and solar, but not greenhouse gases. So if we don't include the greenhouse gases, the models just go like this. But once we add the greenhouse gas changes, the increasing CO2 in the late 20th century, suddenly the models start to agree very well with, uh, with the observations. And we have maps of this. Uh, there's the natural forcing, which then is just volcanoes and, and solar changes, and it's, it's very small. You can see this scale goes from minus two to plus two degrees C. But just look at these maps here now of the observed trend of temperature change from 1950 to 2000 and what the models produce when we include uh, the CO2 forcing. So this helps us build confidence that the models are giving us some realistic representation. So where is all the heat going? This is another one of those figures that is showing an accumulation over time, beginning in 1970 and going to 2010. Don't worry about these dotted lines. They have to do with our uncertainty of understanding and so on. But basically, what's in the light blue uh, is showing the heat uptake by the global ocean over time. And what's in the uh, darker blue is in, is in the deep ocean. And we have land and ice, and you see that it's very small. So pretty much the majority of the heat uptake, in fact, on the order of about 90% of it, is in, is in the global ocean. But just to try and put the problem into context, what this equates to when we look at the upper ocean over the last 40 years is a temperature change of about a half a degree. That's something you can't go out into the ocean and sense. It's just, it's small, gradual, but the ocean has this great capacity to absorb heat, uh, and, and that's where it's going. I'm taking a little bit of a diversion from the IPCC just to show you some hints of my own work. This is showing um, maps of decades of where we have measurements of temperature from the surface down to about 700 meters. They come from uh, merchant marine vessels that have been voluntarily take, throwing uh, instruments over the side. Sometimes it's been from um, uh, research vessels and so on, but you can see back in the 50s where it's white, we basically had no measurements. And you can see how that's evolved over time. This here just means that there's lots of ship, ship traffic 
And in the, in the 90s, there was the World Ocean Circulation Experiment, so we started to get more observations. And then suddenly, uh, in the last decade, we've finally got global coverage. And this is very important because we've been missing uh, the Southern Ocean, which is a huge part of, of the globe. So uh, something really radically has changed there. And it's been this revolution in observational oceanography uh, using technology. What we have now are these Argo floats, which are thrown overboard, and they go down to about 1,500 meters, and they sit for about a week. And uh, then they, there's a little magic inside that changes uh, the density of a fluid in the chamber, and that, that uh, instrument can slowly start to rise to the surface. And as it's going to the surface, it takes temperature measurements and salinity measurements, and when it gets to the surface, it sends that information to satellite, which then gets collected. And then once it's done that, it goes straight back down to 1,500 meters and sits for another week. It's not kept at the surface because if it was, it would just be moving around like crazy and everything would end up in the great garbage patch or something. So, but if it stays at 1,500 meters, it's only going to move about a meter a day or so because the currents are really very slow. So these colors now represent uh, Argo floats from different countries that have been, are out there in the global ocean and importantly include the southern ocean. And uh, I have worked with colleagues at, at Scripps uh, in San Diego and we have both done different studies on making use of the model results and with the observations, and uh, this is just a cartoon indicating that in the various basins of the world, we see that the, the models, when we include the greenhouse gases, are consistent with what we see in the observations, but when we don't include the CO2, there's a clearance inconsistency. So now we're gonna talk a little bit about the future, what these models are telling us about the future. This is a map of uh, temperature change at the end of the 21st century. And this is for one of the scenarios of, of, of what we're gonna do over the next century. You see that there's more warming over land than there is ocean. This makes sense to us. The oceans have this great capacity to absorb the heat. And there's quite a lot of bit more warming in the high latitudes, in the Arctic, than there is elsewhere. We understand this. This is uh, a result of uh, what we refer to as a feedback. And it's a positive feedback, and positive in the sense that it's, it's making the problem worse. It's making it warm faster than otherwise would happen. And what's happening is, as the sea ice begins to melt, rather than sunlight being reflected by the sea ice, because most, most sunlight is reflected directly back to space from sea ice, once it becomes open ocean, most of that sunlight is absorbed by the ocean. So whether or not there's ice or ocean makes a big difference on the energy balance and what's gonna happen with the sunlight. So basically as the ice melts, there's more heat that's absorbed and it happens more faster. Precipitation is a lot more complicated. We have less confidence in the models when it comes to precipitation, but what it's showing here is that uh, the areas that are normally very wet, which is in the intertropical convergence zone uh, over uh, the Pacific and the Atlantic, uh, they get wetter. And the areas that are very dry, uh, primarily along the eastern subtropics, uh, they start to get um, uh, drier. 
Um, so I mentioned this, this feedback notion. There are other feedbacks uh, that we have to be concerned with, and the most important one that we still struggle with is the feedback associated with clouds. Because clouds are very complicated. There are many very, very different types of clouds, and those different types of clouds may change in a warming climate. And we're still trying to understand uh, what those implications may be. So we use lots of models. Uh, there are something like 40 different modeling groups around the world now that we work with that run these common set of experiments. What's shown here now, again, we're looking at global average temperature from 1900 to 2100 now. So the black line goes to present. So this is the models now are giving us a, a version of reality. And what these lines are showing is we've basically taken all the models together and averaged them uh, to give us uh, an average model result. What these little squiggles here are a, a sudden cooling associated with volcanic eruptions. But what happens uh, now for these different lines here, these are future projections of what we, they're, they're based on what are the choices we make? How much CO2 are we gonna put into the atmosphere? So these scenarios, uh, as we call them, um, We've been fed information from different types of experts who study policy, energy decisions, energy technology, and come up with um, possible, possible pathways uh, for the 21st century, and basically, what are we gonna be doing? And uh, so this one down here uh, is, suggest is based on we stop burning as much fuel as, as we're doing, we get much more energy efficient, and so somehow we figure out how to deal with uh, what we're doing. This red line here is uh, we just keep doing what we're doing pretty much and we see how that goes. These lines over here are indicating for each of these different scenarios the range of results at the end of the 20th century, 21st century for the different scenarios. And while there's quite a range of results for the different models, we see uh, that between this scenario and that scenario it's pretty clear. Uh, despite the differences we get from different models, uh, we get a very different picture depending on the choices that we make. What's shown over here now are just uh, two different models. And, and they give different answers, particularly in the North Atlantic. And so uh, we study these differences between the models. And so there's some things that we have confidence in the models and other areas where, where we have less confidence. And similarly with uh, Arctic sea ice. Uh, this purple line is showing uh, for September the sea ice extent uh, in millions of square kilometers and how it has changed over time. This is largely now measured by satellites. But the models now uh, are simulating the late 20th century and we've got different scenarios and basically we're finding that uh, somewhere between uh, 2040 and 20. 80, uh, the Arctic in September can become near ice-free. <coughs> and of course, there's the issue of sea level. What's shown here are different observations. So this begins in 1700, going to 2100. So from this point all the way to this gray line, uh, that's observations. Um, and um, we have observations from tide gauges. For a shorter record, we have them from satellites. We have different sorts of proxies made by different investigators, but this kind of gives you the general idea. And then these are projections of sea level change based on what if we don't make any changes, 
versus uh, what if we managed to make some changes. So there's a clear difference. But one thing I'd like to point out is that uh, for the next 20, 25 years, it doesn't really matter which course we take. It's already built into the system. The carbon dioxide that is already in the atmosphere, we're, resp the, we're responding to that. So the changes that we may make in terms of how much CO2 we put into the atmosphere with regards to sea level aren't going to make a big difference for the next 25 years or so. Where they really make a big difference is on the order of 100 years. And one more figure with the model results. Uh, this is a little complicated, but um, basically the point here is that uh, everywhere on the globe is different. There's large uh, variations in the natural variability. The year-to-year -year weather, we know here that some years are wetter than others, some years are warmer than others, and some of it's year-to-year, -year, and some of it actually takes place on much longer timescales, such as uh, the influence of the El Nino events that take place. And that's natural variability we indicate by this gray shading here, basically. This is Anything in there uh, fits with what we have expectations of um, from natural variability. What's shown here now for each of these locations is the warming in these models once we put the CO2. And uh, you see that in different locations, uh, a point in time where we could clearly say, well, this is very unusual. Uh, it's wildly dependent on where you are, and it's, and it's not now. It's somewhere in the future. So the point here is that uh, as much as we may feel like we sense changes from the way things were when we were a kid, from a scientific point of view, we're hard-pressed to be able to state with confidence that, in fact, those changes are not just due to natural variability. We have to step back and look at the much bigger picture and try and separate out the variability and so on. Okay, so one last uh, result to show you, and this is again looking into the future. The question is, what if we stop burning fossil fuels now? So this is the model results to the near present, and then three different experiments have been done. One experiment is we just keep going as we're going, like this, and the shading represents some measure of uncertainty we have because these models are not perfect. We get a range of results, but nonetheless, they're all going in that direction. Versus, uh, well, what if we manage to just keep the forcing the same as it is now? And we see, at least with regards to surface temperature, it levels off pretty quickly. But if we go to zero emissions, which there's a subtle difference between this and that, uh, there's actually a spike that happens here. And what that's associated with is uh, these aerosols that I mentioned a few moments ago which uh, have a much shorter lifespan in the atmosphere than CO2. They're more like that water molecule that ends up uh, in the air. They last for about a week or so in the atmosphere. And, but they come from um, the burning of fossil fuels, and they're very complicated. There's a lot about them that we don't understand yet. They are included in the models, but uh, in a rather crude way. So it's still highly uncertain. But the bottom line here is that uh, we think that the the effect of the aerosols is to, is to slightly cool the planet. So in this case, if we take the aerosols away, uh, rather rapidly we think that the, there would be a rapid increase in warming just because of the CO2 in the atmosphere. Okay, so 
these are bottom line conclusions from uh, the scientific basis report. I mentioned uh, if that report is around somewhere. There's another, this is the summary for policymakers. So that monster report was synthesized down to uh, some 20 pages, uh, which was pr provided to uh, people in various governments to make decisions. And these are the bottom line um, uh, points that are made. Uh, nothing perhaps surprising to you. Uh, so they're kind of almost, uh, it's more of the same, but we just have much more confidence. The warming of the climate system is uh, unequivocal since the 1950s. We no longer have any doubt about this because we see it in many different types of observations. And that the largest contributor to these changes is the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere. And the human influence on the climate system is clear. We, we, we make this statement based on a variety of factors and that the continued emissions of greenhouse gases will cause further warming and changing in all components of the climate system. Uh, and the only way we can stop that is uh, substantial, sustained reductions in greenhouse gas emissions. So as a result of all of the science that's been done and then a smaller body of experts uh, evaluating that science, spending a few years going through a process of arguing about how much of it do we believe and how much of it do we not. We really have to stick to our guns in that process in uh, assessing uh, all of the work that's been objectively so that in the end, statements like this th that can be made. So I think that's my last slide. And uh, I might just add a word or two with regards to uh, some, some thoughts about this, this whole situation. Um, we clearly uh, now, as has been indicated uh, uh, through several IPCC reports, the, the climate is changing and, and that we're having an influence on it. I think one of the things we really struggle with, uh, that is the, the scientific community, is that some of our knowledge we have a great deal of confidence in, that we, we understand it really well. But there's a whole bunch of things that we don't understand very well. We're asking a lot of the right questions, but we don't know the answers to them. And that has been used against us. The stuff that we don't understand or any work done in that area, which just shows how, how little we understand, ends up being projected back to the whole picture. And so that's, that's really um, because we feel that we've been able to hone in on the things that we understand well uh, and, and that they are not going to be influenced by surprises, things that we don't understand yet well enough. We know the Earth is warming. We know why uh, on a globally average sense. What we don't know is what's going to happen locally here, regionally or in many places. The regional changes uh, are a real challenge. The, the climate models that I've been discussing were really, the theory behind them is based on, on the broad circulation of how the whole climate system works. When we start talking about local changes, uh, it's a whole different set of mechanisms. And uh, there's a lot of work being done to try and better deal with that. But basically, uh, while we have high confidence that the globally the Earth is warming, and it's especially warming in, in the Arctic, um, our confidence is, is low with regards to what's going to happen regionally what's going to happen in terms of rainfall, 
the hydrological cycle itself, how that may be affected uh, by, by climate change. But that's the stuff that we're being pushed to answer. Uh, the funding agencies, uh, the, the world at large wants information about, well, where, where should we be building dams and the like? And uh, that's a, an entirely different arena than what I've tried to present here today, which is the global perspective of our understanding. I can stop there. Peter, thank you very, very much. There's so many places we could go from here, and actually your last comments speak to uh, a natural starting point for a community of people sitting on the coast of Northern California. You seem to be saying that you're, you're confident of the broad picture of where you're going, but that... We're going. Where we're going, absolutely. <laughs> but that... Um, by the way, let me just say, I misspoke. It's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. I said the International yep. Panel. So it's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. But if I heard you correctly, it's quite difficult to predict for a specific geographical region uh, what will happen. Is that essentially right? Yes. So here we are, sitting in a West Marin County. There are two members of the Bolinas uh, Public Utilities District Board here that are thinking about uh, the needs of the community under climate change conditions. Our neighbors in Stinson Beach live just, I don't know what, a few feet above the ocean. Um, do we know enough to say whether, let me just start with Stinson Beach because it's so obviously vulnerable. Do we know enough to say that in the course of the next 50 years that the ocean is likely to rise enough so that um, storms sweeping over Stinson Beach will increase significantly? Uh, I think we know enough to say that the possibility for those storms sweeping over Stinson Beach uh, will increase. Uh, yes, we know that with high confidence. Um, there are many aspects to climate change uh, and its impacts, which is, in fact, a, a completely uh, separate issue from the scientific basis. I mentioned the three reports from the IPCC one that will be coming out in the fall is based on impacts and vulnerabilities. And they rely on our science. Uh, but when they take it down to a more regional level, they have to live with the uncertainties that we provide to them, which the uncertainties grow as we get to uh, smaller to more regional scales. But they can think in terms of uh, risk factors uh, and vulnerability. So just the way maybe an insurance company does. So it becomes a, a different issue in how much are you willing to risk, uh, how, much you, how much can be lost, how vulnerable your community is, and so on. Uh, so that's one aspect of it. But another is that the issue of sea level is, is special in that um, we, we know that, uh, as I mentioned, the ocean is warming. 
And uh, an important part of the reason why sea level is rising is because as the ocean warms, the, the temperature, the ocean itself uh, expands a little bit. Just the way warmer expands when you warm, just the way air expands when you warm it and rises, uh, the water does not expand as, as readily as, as air does, but it does expand a little bit and enough to make a difference uh, in the sea level change. But that's, that, um, and that's a global thing, sea level rise. We know that there will be important regional differences to that sea level rise. And some of that we have some understanding of now. Uh, and there are still lots of questions. But for example, changes in the, in the atmospheric circulation, um, the prevailing winds could change uh, the way water is moved around and kind of sloughed up against a coastline. Um, there's also the possibility of uh, changes in storm frequency and intensity, which is an area which we have less confidence in. Um, uh, but what we, again, what we do have confidence is, is that globally the sea level will be rising at least because the ocean is going to continue to warm due to the CO2 that's in the atmosphere. And what we worry about is uh, that there may be water that's added to the ocean by ice sheets melting. And that's something we have much less of an understanding of than the ocean warming itself. So the coastline sea level thing, we know the sea level's rising. By how much, uh, that's another issue. But uh, staying on the regional context and say for BPUD, uh, what we have much less of an understanding in is how's precipitation going to change. <coughs> and so, the, the, the water availability issue is very different than coastal erosion. And uh, there are lots of people thinking about these sort of things and developing risk assessments. And I have only kind of thumbed through that second report thus far uh, because I'm really busy. Uh, but I'll be really interested to know what the state of the science is on um, impacts and vulnerability. I mean, so. I think about Stinson Beach and I think to myself, somebody buying a house now in Stinson Beach with a 30-year mortgage on that house, uh, and you, wonder, you begin to wonder at what point does um, the vulnerability of Stinson Beach begin to be priced into housing prices and, um, and mortgages and and all of that. It's, I mean, we're getting very close to the point where it's within the reach of a 30-year loan that, yeah. uh, that that might become a significant uh, factor. On a national scale, uh, our colleague and friend Mark Hertzgard, uh, who's also uh, a sometime Bellinas resident and who wrote the book Hot about uh, climate change, and he has a, uh, an article in the new uh, Business Week which picks up on, um, uh, it's called the $28 trillion climate write-down. And he says, I have the lead story in this week's issue of Business Week, drawing attention to President Obama's oddly overlooked recent sta statement that yes, two-thirds of the Earth's fossil fuels must be left in the ground to avoid catastrophic amounts of climate change. 
This strikes me as by far the most important statement Obama has made about climate change during his presidency. If enacted, it would revolutionize global, global energy practices, halt all exploration for additional depo deposits of fossil fuels, effectively rule out fracking, the whole purpose of which is to access those two-thirds of reserves, and affirm the importance of the fossil fuel divestment campaign. And I've heard uh, recent presentations by uh, climate policy makers where they talk about stranded assets, which is the language in which people talk about uh, the underground fossil fuel reserves that won't be able to be utilized. So the impact of this, uh, if it takes place, is beginning to creep into the financial markets. So if you look at a company like Chevron or Exxon, what is the value of that company based on? It's based on its total proven reserves. But if two-thirds of those total proven reserves can't be utilized, then there's a real question about what the value of these, um, you know, these companies are. It has a, a huge uh, potential impact. So it seems to me in many, many ways that, that the extraordinarily important work that IPCC and you as one of the lead scientists in IPCC have done focused on the science is beginning to trickle in, whether it's the question of, do you want to buy a house in Stinson Beach and should you have a 30-year mortgage and what, you know, or stranded assets on a global level in terms of, you know, carbon companies and, and so forth. So those are simply observations. I don't know if you have any comment on those, but they're simply observations. Yeah, wow. <laughs> well, observations are important, right. like I said, but, uh, well, I, Certainly would have to take my um, science cap off right. before uh, responding to any of that because um, it's well beyond my expertise. And uh, I mean, what, what's clear is that uh, this is a daunting problem. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, thankfully, many people and organizations are concerned about it and, and and trying to do the right thing. And so that, to me, uh, is very encouraging. Um, even uh, I've noticed that there's, I've met a bunch of young kids these days, teenagers who, um, who don't want to uh, uh, get their driver's license. Mm -hmm. They don't want to drive a car. And part of it may be related to they've grown up with this, hey, we're uh, really pushing our limits with regards to the way we use uh, resources. So, I mean, there's things I'm, I am encouraged about, mm -hmm. but it's, it's a mad race uh, in terms of uh, what we do and what we don't do. And I think that one of the things which uh, adds to the complication is not only are there huge... Um, uh, impacts in the sense of if we were to make big policy decisions and change the way we live so that we're all having to work a little bit differently the way we do with our, our cars and so on. Uh, but uh, as I tried to outline that many of the bigger, one, many of the big issues we see are in the decades and towards the end of this century. And it's kind of gray area in terms of 
uh, how much and how fast and where. There's a lot of that we don't understand. And I think for many people, thinking about a problem that's a big problem 50 years from now is much less pressing than all the big problems we have to deal with. I think that's true. And, and if we were to make big decisions now, um, it may not make much difference to the way our world is in terms of the overall climate. It's going to make a difference 50 years from now. Mm -hmm. So it really gets down to, to me, it gets down to the psyche in terms of whether or not uh, people really care about um, what happens uh, once they're gone and once their kids mm -hmm. are gone. Yeah. You're listening to a conversation with Peter Gleckler and Michael Lerner. Uh, Don Smith, um, I'm going to do a little directed stuff for a little while here, but Don Smith and Vic Amoroso, what is the BPUD thinking about with respect? Is, is the BPUD thinking about climate change? Let me just start with that question. Well, yeah, I mean, we haven't discussed formally the what we call the meeting. Other than water availability. But, I yeah. mean, yeah, we're, we're thinking about it, but we don't. Um, have the slightest idea what's going to happen. I mean, one of the charts there, and I've seen this before, shows us kind of right on the cusp between warming and cooling. So that may or may not imply that we may be right on the cusp with regard to more or less rainfall too, but, but then I've also heard that the droughts are likely to be much deeper and the wet periods much wetter, and, and that's probably the worst thing we would have to face is a long drought, because um, if Arroyo Hondo, which is a remarkably reliable creek, even this year, um, if that goes dry, we're screwed, you know, and, and uh, I mean, I don't know what, to, honestly don't know what to do about that. We could build a reservoir, but it's extremely expensive, um, and it's not an obvious place to put it even. <coughs> So, um, yeah, I mean, we, we, I don't have any ideas, honestly. You know. Vic, do you want to add anything to that? I don't have much to add, but the truth is uh, <coughs> we're just trying to get through this year. <laughs> and maybe the next few. Uh, I don't think we've taken any and, and we know that there is a problem. We're certainly hoping we can come up with some new sources. But, uh, There's a level at which climate change is global, but all climate change is local in a certain way. And so... Because there will be so much variability, the question of resilience in individual communities will relate to the specifics, which are so uncertain. One thing I notice is a lot of people are ordering more of those big uh, plastic tanks to store rainwater off our roofs as, you know, personal responses to uh, this. So I think there's a there's more tanks going in around town, in my observation. We strongly encourage that, and actually when we had the ration water about four feet. You encourage that. That was uh, a right. big stimulus to that. Right, exactly. Ted Shetler is a leading environmental health scientist who's part of the Commonwealth community and has thought a lot about climate change. Ted, do you have any reflections on Peter's talk? Peter, I know uh, that you have limited time, but uh, could you say a few words about your thoughts about methane and uh, about uh, potential releases uh, from uh, sequestered carbon and methane, both on land and at sea, and whether this actually has potential for creating a really rapid feedback loop? Yeah, that's a worry. Um, methane gas is... Um, a much more potent greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. I, I 
can't remember, I think it's something like 15 times more uh, potent in terms of trapping the heat. Fortunately, there's, it's, it exists in... times over a 10-year period. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a big deal. Mm. Uh, but uh, there's much less of it in the atmosphere. Um, and we are, well, we're producing some. You know, you hear about cows. Yes, that's what they do. They produce methane and uh, rice paddies and so on. What I think you're referring to is the uh, concern about the fact that there's methane trapped in the tundra uh, in, in the, around the Arctic Circle uh, and in areas where basically the ground is frozen and it's trapped and it's been there for thousands of years. And if that starts to thaw out, there's the possibility of the methane uh, being released more readily. Similarly in the ocean, well, not similarly, but there's methane um, clathrates in, in, in areas uh, in the deep ocean <coughs> that some scientists are concerned could uh, rapidly begin to disintegrate and release methane. And yeah, so that is, um, uh, now would we consider that a feedback? Um, that would basically be um, adding the importance of another greenhouse gas or making the methane more, more concerning. My understanding of it is that uh, um, at least over the next century or so, uh, that it's um, not likely to be a big surprise, but that on the longer term, uh, some of these things really could um, could be revealed, particularly with the Arctic tundra. It's something that's not very well measured. Uh, I mean, the actual methane release, people got to go up there and take measurements of methane in the air and so on. And, so it's a definite, it's a definite concern that could be as a result of the ongoing warming. Your uh, your maps uh, showed a, a lot of warming up around the Arctic Circle. Is that yeah. Right? Um, so um, that suggests that 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 the ice there is going to clear out a great deal. So they'll be shipping through there, there'll be oil exploration if we allow it. Um, uh, it will completely change the configuration of Canada, Alaska. Um, it, it, will be, it will create uh, new geopolitical tensions because Russia and Canada and the United States and will all be within shipping distance of each other. Uh, Russia will gain uh, ports along the north. There's just there's a tremendous economic and geopolitical shift that will take place because of that. And not to mention the environmental horrors. There's a of lot course. of it, it's uh, yeah, it's a real mess. Yeah. Um, and so there is quite a lot of focus now on on the Arctic. I mean we. Uh, there are kind of hot spots around the globe where people are focusing in on trying to understand, uh, say, for example, the uh, Asian monsoon um, and the flooding that's associated with it could have an impact on a billion people. So there's lots of study on certain areas in the Arctic really being one of them because that's something, again, that we have high confidence in, that it is, uh, we have, we've witnessed it. It is warming more quickly than the rest of the uh, the planet, 
and we have every reason to believe it will continue to do so. We have broad sweeping understanding for North America. Will the center of the country get hot? Uh, are there things we can say with reasonable confidence about sort of broad areas of North America? Uh, yeah, now we start to get uh, in the air, but I, I think um, the Southwest US um, is, um, there's indications. Uh, so I'd, I'd say the confidence, uh, I'd have to go look in the big book, but I think mm -hmm. it's somewhere between low and, and medium that that area will get um, hotter and drier. Mm -hmm. And what about the Pacific Northwest? What looks like it's going to happen? Uh, maybe wetter. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things that we're still trying to understand uh, is, is the change in the overall, we call it the hydrological cycle, basically the, where there's evaporation over the oceans and, and that moisture gets transported and condenses into rainfall or snow somewhere else. Uh, uh, all indications are that areas that are very wet may in fact get wetter mm -hmm. and areas that are very dry um, will get drier. So that's, uh, that's a, an active area of research. Mm -hmm. So um, with, with my, my hat off... Um, Your science hat off. Yes. Uh, uh, I'm, a, I'm exposed uh, now and again to different... Uh, related aspects of research such as uh, energy policy. I have no expertise in it, but I, sometimes I'm in uh, circles where there are other scientists that are on the forefront of these sort of things, and so they're talking about um, nuclear power and not, and, uh, and so on. And uh, there is, I think, some sense that uh, you probably have all heard that one of the issues here is that um, the growth rate of uh, the production of CO2 or our emissions of uh, CO2 in the atmosphere is largely now uh, as a result of developing countries. We're not producing a lot more than we were five and ten years ago. In fact, I think it's kind of stabilized and there's efforts, uh, a lot of talk and some action between Europe and the U.S. and elsewhere to try and think and do something about this. But in, in China and India, um, they're uh, rapidly developing and in, in other countries, in Brazil, and um, the big uh, question is, uh, is it is it fair or is it they're basically just trying to get up to a quality of life that we have and so you know the question is well who, who are we to tell them that they can't do it when we're still we still have it so there's big big issues there and um, with regards to the the nuclear thing I I've sensed that these energy experts think that uh, that's the only solution for dealing with this. And there are some leading climate scientists who are, you know, very uh, um, thoughtful uh, individuals thinking about the future of the planet and the environment and so on, and they have become advocates. And 
I'm not saying myself one way or the other, but um, the argument uh, basically has uh, suggested that things like conservation don't matter because it's the problem is dwarfed by what we could do by conservation. And so here's my hat off. I just don't believe that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I believe that, um, I think that uh, if we could wave a wand and get everybody on the planet somehow to be much more conscientious about how they use natural resources, particularly fossil fuels, but sure, water as well, that it would have a huge impact. And so I think that the, even though regionally we're dealing with huge uncertainties, uh, we know there's this looming thing uh, decades ahead, but we've got these big question marks. It only makes perfect sense to me that we do what we can to prepare for that, both in terms of dealing with the global problem and trying to reduce our emissions, but also in terms of adapting and, and having uh, those cisterns in our backyards and so on. Yeah. Because We've had scientists here who made the opposite case, that nuclear was not the way to go. And, um, you know, if... I wasn't way, making the case that it is a way no, to go. I, I just know that some are. You're saying some are. I understand that. You didn't take a position. <laughs> and um, so we've had scientists here take the opposite point of view. And one of the interesting bases for that is that uh, if nuclear was such a good idea... Uh, then uh, the nuclear industry ought to be able to buy insurance for its uh, plants on the open market, and in fact it can't. And so there are all kinds of risks, including, uh, I mean, you know, plutonium, like, I mean, carbon lasts a long time, and the or CO2 lasts a long time, plutonium lasts quite a while too. And so uh, the issues of um, vulnerability to terrorism and accidents is a tremendous risk factor. So. So it's, it's a debate that goes on as to whether nuclear is... And probably no single country is going to solve that debate. People are going to be making decisions about that in different ways. I think so. Um, I'd like to open it to questions, and let me make a request. Please say your name and keep the questions brief so that we have time for a real exchange. Yes. Hi, my name is Anastasia Doherty, and actually I have more of a comment which is that I, I feel that we're, in, we're doing that thing that's very dangerous, which is that we're saying it's in the future, it's actually right now, we're living it now, and uh, maybe not in Bolinas as dramatically as you might be living it uh, in the Southwest, for example. And so I feel that the language that we use around this topic is, is actually very crucial and that, um, that we need to be a little more urgent than we are mm -hmm. because um, it is, it, it's a crisis. And um, I, I feel very uh, affected by it every day. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm not at all comfortable with the, the word looming or the projection uh, of, of these models. It, this is, it's, climate change is today, right now, the biggest issue that we are facing. Yeah, we're, you're getting some head nodding, so okay. I, think, I, I think we all so, have different functions. So that's my contribution. Thank you very much. Yes, in the back. Yeah, I, have a, <clears throat> I have a question. My name is Bob Gillardin. A brief context, I work for a startup that fixes meth takes methane and produces a biodegradable plastic. 
So my question for you, since we have the potential to mitigate, mitigate methane emissions, so the question is, I was looking with interest at your model, your mathematical models, with carbon dioxide and anthro all the anthropogenic emissions and without, and I wonder if, if your modeling group has done the same thing simply with the variable of methane, so that we might question mark question is, could we figure out what these projections would look like if we were to reduce emissions by 100 megatons of methane, for example? <laughs> okay, that was a little easier because that's a science question. Right? And <laughs> so what, one thing I really glossed over, I, I had to, you saw that book, I mean, I, um, is... Uh, that over the last, uh, this last generation of model results, what happens is we get all of these modeling groups aligned to agree to do a common set of experiments, and they spend years improving their models, and then years running their models, and then we spend years studying them, but it's done in a kind of coordinated way, because we learn a lot by doing them all together. And one of the big steps that's been made in the last round, in the last five or so years, is that the carbon cycle is now included in many of these models. And that means that we're not just telling the models what the carbon dioxide concentration is and making it stick to that, but we're allowing the model to change the concentration itself. We're allowing the model to absorb the CO2 into the land or into the ocean and change the actual concentration in the atmosphere, and that changes how the, the climate responds. And so methane is uh, on the list. Um, uh, there are groups that are actually working on it. Um, so the answer is, is yes. It's regarded as something that needs to be folded in into the picture. And so it, it you know, on the one hand, there's science, scientists which are scrambling to do, to add more complexity to these things, to try and understand things. And, and great progress is being made, but I, I'm, I fully agree with you that, you know, out there, uh, this is a this is a a first order pressing problem that uh, that um, the societies all around the world need to need to be confronting. Uh, but when it comes to this process, uh, we have to be um, really. Um, as objective as possible in terms of the information that we give the governments. And there's plenty in these reports that is, you know, dire, uh, and, and that really say, states emphatically that we need to act now. So that, that's all there. Uh, but at the same time, um, we have to be careful not to let you know, we're all concerned about this and we see, oh, well, there's been a drought, you know, in the southwest or something, and so climate change is, is worse than we thought. Well, from our side, being, uh, constantly being uh, skeptics about everything that we come across and having to convince ourselves about the information, we first got to convince ourselves that that drought was actually not just natural variability. So... Um, that's not to take away from the movement, uh, and there is movement uh, to, to try and make real changes, but we, when it comes to the science, we gotta, we gotta stick to that piece so that uh, it can't be attacked. Other questions, yes. 
Um, Name, please. Kent Kitsikian. I have a short comment and a question. Um, the comment goes to the issue of nuclear power as, a, as an option into the future to reduce carbon emissions. Um, two days before the New York Times reported the story about the um, West Antarctic ice sheet being undermined by the warm water beneath it and the bowl-shaped geological configuration beneath it. I think it was The Guardian reported that uh, Germany had produced 74% of its energy using renewable technologies. Um, I don't recall if that was a one-day peak or they had hit that on a sustained basis, but whatever it was, that's remarkable, and it's remarkably higher than the percentage of energy produced in the, any other part of the world using renewables. Um, so there may be other solutions, non-nuclear. Um, Absolutely. Question. There are some carbon sequestration technologies, um, and, and this may be a question that's really moving pawns in a game that's already a check, if not checkmate, but do you think, can you comment on any carbon sequestration technologies that you think might hold some part of a solution going into the future? Okay, so what's, what's being referred to here um, as carbon sequestration um, is the idea that uh, we try and um, address the problem by taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and, and basically stuffing it somewhere else so that uh, we could get the atmosphere concentration back to more natural levels. Um, and that is one form of uh, what's often referred to as geoengineering um, that is talked about quite a lot. Um, and I think it's a more viable um, approach to the other form. And the other, the other option is what are referred to as solar radiation management methods. And this involves, um, uh, in the simplest case, the of, of uh, spreading aerosols up above the tropopause, uh, just the way kind of like a volcanic eruption, when, if it, the eruption is large enough and um, the thrust of the rising air can penetrate through the tropopause, it can inject aerosols into the stratosphere where they will last for a long time. Um, and, and that has a instantaneous cooling on the Earth's surface. And so one of these ideas is that we do that. We just take planes up there and spread dust around the planet. Um, and uh, to me, it's very scary because... With your hat off. With, well, I can have, even have my hat on to that one because... Yeah, there's, there's stuff uh, that we just have no idea. Um, I mean, I think we could cool the planet in that regard, but um, it could affect the patterns of rain in ways that we have no clue about. But back, back to your question about the carbon sequestration then, that's another... Um, to me, seems a safer idea. My understanding is that the problem is is just one of scale, in that you, there's so many automobiles and power plants out there that are produce the volume 
as I, as I mentioned early on in my presentation, CO2 is a good thing. We wouldn't be here without it. Uh, it's that we have created this imbalance. And uh, the imbalance is now in the form of huge quantities of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And to take it out uh, is a big job. Or to find ways to prevent it from getting up there. So like preventing it from a, from a power plant, somehow trapping it before the CO2 gets in the atmosphere. Personally, I don't know of, um, I mean, I know there's been, you know, people are thinking about things like along the, yeah, crazy stuff. Um, char, it's um, basically converting it into hard carbon and putting it into the ground. It's something that was done in the Amazon basin um, by indigenous peoples hundreds of years ago. And mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's very efficient, but it uses a fair amount of energy to get to um, the end product. Other questions and comments? Yes, Tom. Well, I just wanted to follow up a little bit on sequestration because there's another project right in our <coughs> backyard and that... Um, uh, according to John Wick, uh, is, is is extremely promising, and there is some um, scientific backup of this uh, at UC Berkeley with Professor Silver there, and and the idea is that um, uh, carbon sequestration occurs in in the roots of grasses, and 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 um, if you change rangeland management practices so that the roots can penetrate uh, deeper, you um, and this was one number he threw at me a while ago, is that if, if um, even half of the rangeland in California were changed to this different practice, that the sequestration of carbon would offset all of the transportation emissions in the state, which seemed astounding to me, but... Um, Sounds great. Yeah, so, you know, um, people keep thinking of, of, of new ways to get at this. And we actually have a podcast of John Wick and Peggy Rathman on the Marin Carbon Project. So we had a presentation on that technology. You're listening to a conversation with Peter Gleckler and Michael Lerner. So on a, on a positive note, because it's pretty easy for, mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's a lot of not so good news <laughs> with regards to this. Um, I'm, I'm really all for the idea of... Uh, um, action locally to try and find solutions. It may not solve the world issue, but if everybody is finding uh, ways to help the problem a little bit, um, that we really we really may get somewhere. So with regards to the energy issue, which again, I, I'm not an expert in that, uh, those same energy people that I've heard talking about the, uh, you know, the various options is, um, I've, they all think there's no single solution. There's the, this problem is complex enough and how we get our energy that there's going to be multiple solutions. And to me, the alternative energy solution should be at the top of the list, and that's really what we should be pushing in as much as we, we can um, with solar and wind. Um, but when there are uh, people doing things locally that uh, they've been able to demonstrate or moving us in the right direction, I think that's a great idea. If that idea may not work in Nevada uh, because they can't grow the grass, but it works here and it helps. So um, the, again, I, a good news thing here is I think is if there are more 
if it just becomes more natural for people to be, it's just part of their psyche and the way they think about when they use uh, natural resources that they're just, uh, the natural thing to do is use them wisely. And, and Germany is the case in point. You know, I, I, I'm always amazed in Germany and just walking, watching people around. I mean, they're so good at energy efficiency. Uh, and it's not just about global warming. It's in their blood. It, there's a history of mm -hmm. they're just, and they all, you know, they haven't had plastic bags for a long time. And so there's lots of good things we can still be working on. There's, uh, let me just do a little digression on Germany because you raised the point. Um, it turns out that the, one of the reasons that Germany has lower cost per unit of installing solar uh, and is that um, much of the cost in the United States is the cost of acquiring uh, customers or clients. And for reasons I don't completely understand, that cost is very low in Germany. So it drives the cost per unit of, clim of, of solar and wind way down, which makes it more cost-effective because they have low cost for acquiring clients, probably because they're mandating. I don't know, but that's, hmm. you know, uh, just a piece of it. The other thing, just to show how complex the world is, is um, that uh, when Germany decided to go non-nuclear, under the rules of a trade agreement between Norway and Germany, Germany was sued by a Norwegian nuclear plant for lost uh, profits that resulted from the fact that their uh, planned nuclear plant was canceled. And uh, one of the things that's going on right now is that these investor state uh, uh, arbitration agreements which enable companies to sue countries for lost profits if, uh, if an environmental regulation stops a company from fracking or mining or putting in a nuclear plant. Uh, these are now involved in many bilateral trade agreements like between Nor Norway and Germany. There's a huge movement in both the Atlantic and the Pacific regions for the United States to push these global trade agreements that would give multinational corporations around the world the opportunity to sue uh, any country or any state or any municipality that tried to protect itself. So, so there's a, so I'm just pointing to the tremendous complexity of how trade agreements impact this stuff, and so forth. And the final comment I want to make, just to broaden the image, I totally agree with the point about how vital climate change is. One could not agree with that more. But I think it's important to set a context. And the context is that when we look at the sixth age of extinctions that we're in, climate change is only one of the drivers, you know. You know uh, population growth, climate change, mm. toxic chemicals, habitat destruction, invasive species. And then on top of that, uh, you know, the, uh, the, man, the other man-made forces. So Bill Joy wrote an a very uh, classic article in Wired magazine called The Future Doesn't Need Us, in which he talked about how we were moving from 
an age of weapons of mass destruction, nuclear and other, to technologies of mass destruction. And the issue about GMOs and biotech and nanotech and synthetic chemistry and so forth is that these have the potential to multiply out of control once they're loosed into the environment. So GMOs, for example, that's already happening. Uh, and we're reaching the point with uh, nanotech and robotics of self-assembling on, you know, micro level. So it just seems to me that one of the many dangers we face is that if we make climate change our only concern, it sucks the energy out of an awareness of the total transformative effect. So uh, when um, uh, many years ago, the um, secretary of the... Um, Brundtland Commission, which was one of the great commissions that looked at sustainability, was here at Commonwealth, and he said he, heuristically, he saw four possible futures. One was business as usual, a second was descent into chaos, a third was achieving sustainability, and a fourth was becoming artificial people on an artificial planet. And the point is, those are heuristic, but the, the real point is that Three of those happen by themselves. Business as usual happens by itself. Descent into chaos happens by itself. Becoming artificial people on an artificial planet happens by itself. So sustainability is actually the most artificial of all because it requires cultivating the earth as a garden. It requires an immense, immense sensitivity to all these interactions and all these infinite complexities. And we simply neither have the governance capacities nor the collective wisdom. So, uh, so where I sit in, in this, sort of as somebody who's, you know, been involved with future scenario stuff for a long time, is that yes, climate change is by far the most pressing and powerful, but if we don't put it in a context, mm -hmm. we lose a sense of the true challenge. Mm -hmm. It's not just about ending climate change. There are things that we may do in the name of ending climate change, that will set off other cycles and other things like that. I have a question. Yes, please, go for it. Yeah, I was wondering about um, uh, this possibility that our governments are doing something about climate change, uh, that they're actually using uh, aircraft, which is geoengineering, um, and they're spraying, you know, as I heard before uh, earlier in the conversation, that they're forming clouds. Um, do they have a high, ac um, high account of aluminum and mercury within the sprays that they do have? Uh, well, first of all, a factual question. There's a lot of, um, maybe you know the answer to this, but when you said they're doing this in order to... Well, I mean, to, to combat global warming in some ways. I mean, the, the, green, yeah, the greenhouse gases are going up. And you're saying the governments are are sending up aircraft to combat yeah, as yeah. as you did did you mention earlier that geoengineering these these aerosols do combat global warming that well, possibly I, I think uh, um, a lot of what you said is uh, you know something that we need to be concerned about but they but they're not uh, they're not actively doing it they're uh, bullshit. they're debating it <laughs> okay okay we have different well well only I'm saying that out of my own ignorance. Oh, okay. You are. Yeah. Well, no, hold on. I mean, air, one second, please. Airplanes. One second here. Hold on. No. Civility is fundamental at Commonweal. Fundamental. So I'd like to hear your point of view, but I would like to hear it expressed in a kind way. All right? So your point is 
that you you believe that the governments are doing this on purpose. Is Not quite on purpose, okay. but in a sense to stop the carbon emissions, the carbon footprints, right. that it actually traps the heat within our atmosphere right. and whatever is dispersed that actually creates carbon gases that create into our stratosphere, it stays up there. Mm. So if they actually do spray it, uh, it creates these effects with these molecules which are microscopic and it could have had like, you know, as I heard, um, uh, you know, aluminum, uh, barium, uh, the possibility of sulfuric. I read some reports that Bill Gates had talked about and he said he was trying to um, dump more small amounts of sulfuric into the atmosphere, which, uh, you know, volcanoes can't emit enough sulfuric, so they have to have these jets uh, that the government, you know, the UN is working with, with our, our U.S. government. And I've read that the U.S. Army is actually making a priority number one with the uh, Air Force to okay. actually work. So to my knowledge, that is a theory that some people hold. Okay. And this gentleman here, I believe is certain, but you, you, you do, do you know so, this? So uh, what I believe is possible, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of stuff <clears throat> that I don't know, so okay. I could be, but what I believe is possible is that there's uh, research going on right. uh, that, that we don't know about uh -huh. in various countries. But the idea of actually going and trying to change the world is uh, by uh, spreading these things out there is going to be, a, if it happens, it's going to be a pretty significant undertaking. It doesn't take just one airplane. It's going to take... It's going to be a massive deal. And, and one of the big concerns about it, I mean, just, you know, us measly scientists aren't involved in the politics stuff, but one of the big concerns is that, uh, uh, I mean, the notion of geoengineering has entered our sphere of climate research, and there was a lot of angst about it, a lot of debate, a lot of anger, a lot of scientists didn't, thought that we shouldn't even think about this because we think it's obscene. But it's been forced upon us. If we don't think about it and try and understand it better, then it's just going to happen without having even less of an idea of, what's, of what, you know, what the possible consequences are. And uh, there's an important distinction be between this uh, carbon capturing method of just somehow taking it, or preventing it from getting into the atmosphere in the first place and stuffing it somewhere versus this idea of solar radiation management, which I think is scary. And a, a concern that has been raised, uh, even in the scientific circles, is that some countries may think that they stand to benefit by climate change, and they may try and go and do something about it uh, to try and, you know, if, if we start to develop this knowledge base that, yeah, we can mess with the climate by going up there and doing stuff, uh, that's pretty scary because then it crosses, uh, you know, who's going to be doing it and who's it going to benefit? But in terms of what's being done, uh, there's, uh, I don't believe there's any massive campaign out there trying to do something about it right now uh, because it would be a big scale thing. And if, they, if somebody is, they don't know what they're doing. We don't know what the consequences are going to be. That's, that's where, where I sort of go. I actually do write about these sort of areas. Um, and I'm a little concerned because I think that methane, um, hearing a little bit about the methane, it actually is billionth in our, our atmosphere. And somehow it's um, creating these different types of, you know, the, the gases that we're possibly breathing okay. in. But in, in doing so, do you think that it's possible that the sunlight 
could maybe burn the atmosphere if enough methane is So in the let atmosphere? me make a suggestion. First of all, I appreciate your comment. Oh, sure. And I want to get some other thoughts in here. Oh. So perhaps you could pursue that with Peter after the meeting. So could you give your name, sir? And uh, Phil Sean. Yeah. Now, if you were going back to the methane, all you have to do is um, look at the East Siberian shelf, the Laptev Sea. The UN is flipped out of their freaking mind out of that. They don't know what to do on that. Yeah, that's, yeah. It is full-blown panic. And methane, this methane goes up like in about, they think about two-year time period. It's going to go up. They don't know what to do. Their idea is nuke the atmosphere. That's one of those big who's plans. That? Who's that? The climate engineers. Ken Caldera. Um, uh, and, and, and people don't read this stuff because, you know, they know what Kenny. Okay, so laptop C. Just take a look at that. I mean, if you want to look at see where the real methane problem is. But I, 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 I read an article about it. In uh, 2008, I, had a I was working in San Rafael, and this lady said to me, you know, my husband thinks they're spraying the upper atmosphere. And I said, that's pretty out there, but, you know, I'll take a look at it. And look at anything. So I started looking at it, and I started looking at it, and I saw it, and I started seeing it. And I wasn't into photography at all back then, but then I started taking pictures. And I have, like, from over in Oakland, I have about 12 hours of just solid pictures, which is just um, 12 hours of film, which is each film segments, maybe about 20 or 30 seconds. It's a lot. I mean, over and over and over. Just pattern recognition. See it over and over and over again. And they're spraying. So the other day, Monday, fun day, I was out here at Severe Clear. All of a sudden, you know, I get out and look. Huge aerosol going all the way across the valley, all the way across, all the way, way over past Stinson Beach. And I'm looking at Then all of a sudden, Cirrus radiatus clouds start flying off the thing. Then all of a sudden, more, and all they do here, they're doing the same thing in Hawaii. All they do here is they build them out there, and then it all comes in. And what they can't fit, what, what they can't build out there, that comes in, if they have to come in and fill in, they just come in and fill, they're doing fill-ins. Okay, thank you for that. And I appreciate that that is something you've studied. And what I'd like to say is, in a lot of fields, what I consider is they're different cultures of knowledge. So the two of you have some similarities in a culture of because knowledge. Because we look. The because you look, look up. Okay. Take a day off. Get away from your computer. Okay. Put your everything away and right. go outside and look up. That's all you got to do. Simple. Okay. Thank you. I really appreciate that. There are other cultures of knowledge in the room, and so I'd like to, to give them all opportunities. Uh, I find this in medicine a lot. There are many different cultures of knowledge in medicine. I have respect for them all, the different people. I've had many friends who have we're, views similar. This guy back here and me, we're tired of being told we're like ignorant, we're stupid. We're we don't know what we're talking about. We get it all the time. We tell somebody, and they'll go, yeah. See, we're yeah. certainly not saying you know, that to you. It's because they don't want to look, they want to know what Ken and Kanye are doing. This stuff? Oh, no. Yeah. God. Well, thank you. Thank you. Cheryl, you have a question. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Cheryl Patton, I work here. Uh, Peter, that was a great presentation, and I, I just was wondering what kind of impact this has in terms of the UN or policymakers or governmental bodies that. Uh, how, how, what kind of response are you seeing, or, or could you predict in terms of governments looking at support and uh, uh, starting to pull together uh, uh, a 
about you know some kind of global Manhattan project to deal with problems or a clearinghouse of solutions or what what what, what kind of activities in, in the global level has your report generated? I know it's probably been attacked by different groups, but what's been the positive reaction to it? Well, I guess uh, on the positive note, um, it has had it's gotten a lot of attention, um, and and. Some governments are uh, uh, actively trying to address it. Most are not. And um, I think that it's necessary for us to try and continue to understand the issues as much as we can because we can't... Uh, I can't imagine that... Um, Governments will be making decisions based on some sort of uh, emotional reaction by various environmental groups, uh, which I think many of the environmental groups concerned with climate change are well-founded and doing the right thing. But it's the science that uh, enters the hallways uh, within Washington that... Um, may or may not have an influence. And I think, you know, it's, we see, uh, we see it coming up regularly on a local, state, and federal level. I don't think, uh, I think we got a long way to go. I mean, personally, I like the idea of, you know, some efforts towards a whole nother paradigm of, of the way we come up with energy and the way we think about energy and, and rely on it. Um, but I'm just, you know, a scientist trying to understand the problem. I don't have the big answers for, for it. Peter, when you uh, speak of how science is what enters the halls of decision makers, um, you know, we have a country where, um, what is it, about half the country doesn't believe in evolution, something like that. and. Uh, and there's a sizable part of the political establishment, speaking of cultures of knowledge, uh, that um, continues um, to question climate change itself. Um, so um, it seems to me that I, I agree with you that it's not going to be made on the basis of emotional uh, positions taken by environmental groups, but there are equally emotional positions on the other side of, right. of people who, right. uh, in fact, one of the differences between Europe and the United States that I see when we're over there is that the Europeans take science with considerably more, you know, uh, concern. When you look around the world at countries other than the United States, do you find, because the, the Intergovernmental Panel is a global panel, do most of the countries take the science itself seriously? Is the United States in its political process perhaps a bit of an outlier given how many people contest the science or is it contested all over the world? I think it's contested here more than in most places, mm -hmm. but Australia has been experiencing similar mm -hmm. uh, <coughs> debates mm -hmm. amongst um, you know, some of the deniers and even within the, the government itself now, I think in Europe they are well uh, ahead of us mm -hmm. in, in trying to um, stick to it. Mm -hmm. um, 
So it's a, it's pretty diverse, and of course there are countries that are uh, very vulnerable, like Bangladesh, mm-hmm. um, where they're you know kind of uh, at the mercy of the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, and as I men- mentioned a moment ago, there's also this complexity that some countries may actually benefit from climate change. The ones at higher latitudes, let's say. Uh, there's a lot of unknown there, but it's going to get warmer. Uh, and um, that may be a good thing for some people in some areas. So uh, it's, really, it's really a daunting thing. And I, I appreciate your sentiments about trying to put it into a bigger context. And uh, I, um, you know, as just as a, as a person, I think that uh, again, being conscientious about the way we live mm-hmm. is something that we can all do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even though it, we may not see any direct uh, benefit from that in the climate change problem, uh, it's the right thing for the society at large to be doing. Absolutely. Other questions and comments? Yes, please. Hi, my name is Tony Bennett. Peter, thanks for a great presentation. Ocean acidification seems to be a very huge thing that is gathering a lot of momentum and cascading and moving really quickly. And in your models, what effect did that have? Uh, I believe the ocean's a large carbon sink that the photo, uh, photosynthesis happens a lot in plankton and absorbs carbon. What, what's that specific effect of the ocean acidification on the overall uh, temperature and absorption of carbon going to be? Yeah, so uh, while I do consider my self an expert when it comes to uh, ocean temperature. Uh, this is a different realm. I'm actually, by training, I'm not a chemist, but the chemistry, as I understand it, is actually fairly simple. Um, and it's, uh, it seems downright scary to me, this idea that uh, the ocean is getting um, more acidic as a result of uptaking um, CO2, and that what's different there than uh, the issue of the planet warming is we're talking about, uh, we already have a pretty solid knowledge on the implications of that on, um, sea on sea life. And there may be people in this room that can uh, describe that much better than I can, but uh, that's, one of these things that has kind of risen to the surface from Ken Caldera um, in the last uh, decade and others, people who have been looking at this, have come up with the notion of acidification. So it's definitely uh, being studied both in the field and in the modeling realm. And so I mentioned some moments ago about how some of these models now include the carbon cycle. Another thing that is being developed is uh, dealing with the biogeochemical cycles uh, within the ocean, and that even includes um, marine life. And um, uh, it's, um, you know, it's it's wild that it's there, but um, uh, so I don't don't have the expertise to, well, other than, 
it's clear from what we understand now that the ocean is going to continue to take up carbon dioxide. It takes up currently about a third of the carbon as a result of our burning fossil fuels since the Industrial Revolution. We think about a third of it is now in the ocean, and that's just going to keep increasing. And that's directly hitting the problem. And, um, yeah, other than that, I, you know, that is a real worry. That is the sort of thing that I think we should all be thinking about and, you know, how that could affect the whole marine e ecosystem. There's so much that we don't understand there. And that gets to this other working group that deals with risk. And, um, you know, the fact that, it, could there be a surprise there that over the next 20 years, okay, the planet continues to warm a little bit, but suddenly we start to see a uh, massive die-off of marine life as a result of the acidification. I mean, that, that scares me. Jeez. So um, maybe it's going to take get better understanding of something like that that really will get the whole world in order if they start to think that we're no longer going to have fish that we can get. If I heard you correctly, because I didn't know this before, the carbon dioxide uh, going into the ocean causes the acidification, is that? Yes. Oh, see, that's something I actually didn't know. It's, and the acidification is a hugely important issue. Yeah. So thank you for that. We're right at about the hour. We'll just take one more question. Yes, please. Well, it's quite interesting that just the way uh, people that are overweight take a long time to recover from an anesthetic, global warming will take longer to recover because if there's a reservoir of CO2 in, uh, in the ocean, it, uh, it'll just keep coming back into the atmosphere even though we're not producing it. Right. That's right. There's a, the ocean has a, 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 a good long memory. Mm -hmm. And um, although I didn't mention it here, that has implications for uh, the sea level rise as well um, in that I showed that if we can, if we manage to stop increasing uh, the amount of CO2 we put in the atmosphere, that the temperature could, uh, would stop going up as quickly, uh, could even stabilize. But the sea level rise associated with the thermal expansion, the warming of the oceans, will continue for centuries. Just because that carbon dioxide is in the atmosphere and is going to continue to trap the gases and warm the ocean. Peter, a final question for you. If you had known when you undertook a career as a climate scientist the pressures and the um, uh, challenges that lay ahead of you, uh, do you think you would have taken this on? Oh, sure. Yeah. Because I, I, you know, one of the things I didn't uh, express was, um, well, I think, of course, that all of this work and trying to understand our effect on the climate is, is very important work. Um, most of the scientists involved in this work got into it because they're interested and they're driven by curiosity and, and asking lots of questions and being skeptical about things. And, and uh, when I have the chance to uh, shut my door and actually do some research on the ocean warming, I still love doing that sort of explorative work. The politics is another story, uh, and uh, yeah, um, <laughs> I'd do it. Peter Gleckler, thank you for being with us at the next
You've been listening to a conversation and presentation with Peter Gleckler and Michael Lerner. Thank you for joining us. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio engineer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Port O'Monkeys. Please visit our website at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on Facebook. Thank you for joining us.